and welcome to another episode of the Life After Cardiac Arrest podcast with me, your host, Paul Swindell. Today, I'm joined by a regular contributor, Dr. Tom Keeble. Morning, Tom, and welcome. Good morning. Uh, how are you doing? Yeah, good. Can't complain. I've got you back again. You've been on a couple of times to talk about um, what you've been doing, but one of the things uh, you helped us with a lot recently was the Not Alone event in uh, in Rutland. And uh, just sort of get your your feedback on that and the, the professional's opinion, because uh, you're quite involved with it. And uh, so what are your thoughts about the day? Yeah, I, I thought it was a fantastic day. I think it was always going to be very challenging to, if you like, uh, after the Guinness World Record event last year, it was always going to be challenging to sort of better that. But I think that what we did this year was different um, in that there was a really all bespoke sort of educational component, more time for chatting, which I think is what we learned from the year before, uh, but also more open sort of forums where we could exchange views between patients and relatives, normalise feelings, but also then also between uh, patients, relatives and healthcare professionals who obviously were all there too. And I think we can do even more of that should we wish to go and have another one next year. I think that the, the ability to talk to one another is just so important. And I think we underestimate that. And I, But I thought it was a, a really fantastic day. Certainly the healthcare professionals that were all involved really enjoyed themselves, were humbled to meet the patients and survivors and families who have obviously been through challenging ordeals and to hear some incredible stories and uh, and some incredible stories of resilience and and you know, being up against it and coming through the other side so I thought it was a, a really great day. Do, uh, that's, that's great to hear do, do you guys or do you think the faculty learnt from the uh, patients that they met? I think that in medicine, we are constantly learning. And I think the day we suggest that we're not is is the day to probably hang your boots up and stop. So I think that, yeah, we are constantly learning. I think that I think that less experienced healthcare professionals would probably learn more because I think that most of the faculty or the medical faculty people you had are experienced uh, people uh, in healthcare who have looked after many survivors and families before. So I don't think a lot of the answers and questions and things that we saw were were new to us because we've obviously spent a lot of time over the last five, 10 years involved with this patient group. But at the same time, we always learn something. Uh, and as I say, maybe less experience, whether they're cardiac rehabilitation nurses or OTs or physios, I'm sure learn absolutely huge amounts because there's so much we can learn from our patient groups. Mm-hmm. I mean, most of the day was uh, we had sessions that were focused on giving the patients and their families information. But towards the end of the day, we had some breakout sessions, which were essentially for the, for the medical professionals, the feedback sessions. Can you tell me how they went from, from your point of view? Yeah, so we had two uh, breakout sessions. One was a, a survivor uh, sort of hall where a uh, colleague, uh, Professor Karen Smith from Melbourne and uh, Rosalind Case, a neuropsychologist, um, went through the challenges that survivors face and the, the way in which healthcare provides for them or, or not, as the case may be. And then likewise, I ran a session for the uh, family members uh, of survivors again, about their experience of, of, of being a family member during this difficult time and during the recovery and what that was like and how that can be made better. 
And I think that, so I think it was actually remarkably helpful for the healthcare professionals running it, because again, we got 30 people in the, uh, in, in the families and sort of 50 to 60 people in the survivors telling us what the challenges are and then reiterating and then embellishing and, and sort of really supporting what the needs are. But at the same time, I think it was useful for the, uh, the, the relatives and the patients themselves because they got an opportunity to shape future healthcare for others that would have the same condition. So I think it's immensely useful for both sides of the, of the equation, so to speak, both the healthcare provider and, if you like, the patient who did or didn't have a great experience at the time. And um, what do you think will happen with that feedback or will anything happen with that feedback? Is, it, is there somewhere where you can feed it into to improve future care? Yeah, well, I think certainly from the, um, the families uh, that I spoke to and moderated, there was some fantastic practice uh, in certain geographical areas and certain hospitals. And that the, the excellent practice was the mainstay of that was communication with the family while the survivor was in the hospital. And that communication, when it, when it is good, patients and families find it very, very helpful indeed. And so I think we've got to improve communication. I think we've got to improve education because that was the second biggest point that people felt they required was education as to what was going on and what they could do and what they can expect so i think that has been very helpful that we must provide more inf informative uh, uh, information and thirdly i think that rehabilitation was a really key feature of good care so when families and survivors said that they had a good experience and they got what they needed from their hospital and their providers there was a lot of uh, health, a lot of cardiac rehabilitation or general rehabilitation involved back in the community. Uh, and as you know, this has now led to us going and working with the British Association of Cardiopulmonary Rehabilitation uh, so that we can try and make the follow up of these patients uh, much better in a sort of standardised fashion rather than it being brilliant in one geographical area and non-existent in another geographical area. So I think huge amounts came out. I think the other thing was that, as you know, we undertook a survey in a more formal fashion of both uh, the survivors and the families, which enables us to find a needs assessment of what is required. And I think that that's important from a scientific standpoint to let the scientific community uh, understand better the needs of the patient group and the family group so that we can shape better healthcare with outcomes in the future. Yeah, that's, that's great to hear. And I, I guess um, we as patients and families, that, that's our part to play, isn't it? Feeding back to you what we actually want to, to shape um, medical practices and protocols in the future. Um, will there be more of that coming along, do you know? Yeah, well, I think, I mean, the first thing is first, um, I, I think that we need to assimilate all of the information. Our plan is to have a a commentary style publication uh, within the resuscitation journal from our group so that we can say, look, we held this uh, event. We had you know, a huge amount of survivors and families and healthcare professionals come. And these were the outcomes that we have. That's not been done before. That's not been published before. Uh, and actually your group, you know, with nigh on a thousand survivors and families as well, holds a huge key to unlocking what the problems are 
in in, in real you know heavy data. Pe- people will not commission things within the NHS or in any healthcare uh, e- economy without having data to suggest number one there is an unmet need and it's important, and number two that that uh, therapy or that service that you you choose to provide has some sort of effectiveness and therefore some sort of cost effectiveness because it's all nice to have you know nice to have services but if they don't do anything for the patient or for the family then it is a waste of money and energy and we need to prove to our uh, providers and our commissioners that the work that we are trying to do to give cardiac arrest survivors and their families better follow-up is of use to the families and will provide better outcomes and that thus far uh, you know there isn't that much data on that and we need to work as as scientists and as as research and as clinicians with the patient groups to get that data to get to the end point it won't just happen because you say it's a good idea and i say it's a good idea that totally makes sense but how long do these things take to sort of go through the machinery of of scientists and then i guess the commissioning people in the nhs i mean are we going to see anything within a a couple of years or is it five ten years now i genuinely think we will see real positive changes certainly within the next five years but i would hope within the next two to three if i'm going to be realistic because you're right these things take time to filter through to guidelines which is really important and secondly uh, through to actually then delivering it to the patient so i think that we've had some very important interactions recently uh, the two that I would highlight is with all the evidence we've got from your group, we've gone to the Resuscitation Council UK, who we will hold further meetings with, both with your Southern Cardiac Arrest Group and with us as a group of healthcare professionals, and also the British Association of, of Cardiopulmonary Resuscitation uh, uh, Rehabilitation, who perform all of the or oversee all of the rehab work done within the UK. And I think with a combination of backing from both of those organisations, I genuinely think we have a very, very good chance of bringing about a positive change to what the minimum provision for cardiac arrest survivors and their families is. Mm-hmm. Well, hopefully that they, we as a triumvirate uh, and maybe even the British Heart Foundation can move things forward and uh, hopefully at their pace as well so that um, less people... Uh, have a poor experience once they're I mean because we know people are doing a fantastic job in the early stages of the chain of survival in this country and elsewhere but it can always be improved but it seems to be that that further bit down the chain that's lacking a little bit and that's where it needs the improvement yeah I think that's right I think as well your group has highlighted incredibly effectively the complete overlooking of patients with an idiopathic diagnosis or if you like, a non-heart attack diagnosis for their cardiac arrest. I think those patients who have a heart attack diagnosis have a cardiac arrest as a result. They get a fantastic service 99 times out of 100 from the rehabilitation services that are set up to support them. The problem comes in the third of patients who don't have a heart attack as a cause, who often get absolutely nothing. And I think that is just unacceptable in in just any shape or form. Um, I think, again, as you may remember from our talk at the British Association of uh, Rehab, uh, what we did uh, 10 days ago, 
we asked a question to the audience and there was maybe 200 uh, rehab nurses and staff within the audience uh, what proportion of idiopathic or non-heart attack cardiac arrests got rehab and it was less than 50 percent and that certainly fits very well with your data from your web uh, poll of 36 percent i think so it's anything between 35 and 50 i would say of patients who have a non-heart attack cardiac arrest uh, do not get any sort of uh, 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 proper rehabilitation and that's just unacceptable mm-hmm. yeah it certainly bears out in the group as well and 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 in my personal story as well that was the case yeah. Um, but hopefully things will change, as you say, in the next couple of years, um, if yeah. people, the right players come into the place and we can push the right buttons. <laughs> yeah, and I think what we've got to remember here as well is that a lot of this is not difficult. A lot of this is not expensive. This is just a, you know, a, a lot of what I've done before and what I continue to do with survivors and families is just spend an hour talking to them as a human being who has an understanding and an interest in this field, and then really signposting to the local uh, facilities and expertise that there is in the geography to which you live. I really honestly think that that is the the, action, the, the sort of role of this, this service. And I think, again, there is some good data from Veronique Malert's group, which is a model that we copied uh, from, from Holland, where she showed that just having two one-hour slots with a rehabilitation nurse or nurse that understands the problems that cardiac arrest survivors and families have makes a difference to them going back to work, having a better quality of life at six months, and therefore has all of the also cost-effectiveness implications that you might expect of potentially young working people going back to work more quickly. And at the end of the day, most people who have a cardiac arrest and survive just want to get back to the best life that they can get back to following the event. And, and, and that works. And that's, so that's on two times one hour sessions. And I think that has to be the evidence based raw minimum that we provide in this country. Mm-hmm. That sounds sounds reasonable. And that, that study was done like nine years ago, wasn't it? Exactly right. So it was the the protocol was published in 2010, and Veronique will tell you this: she had real troubles getting this paper published. It's it's a seminal paper on rehabilitation of cardiac arrest patients. It's the only randomised controlled trial, and yet it took her, I think, two and a half years to get it published. So you know, there there was a real apathy from the community to want to support and feel that there's a big clinical need here so i think that's what you've been up against i really really do i think that you know if you have apathy at uh, at uh, publication level and therefore at guideline level nothing's ever going to change because all these things are driven by guidelines and provision and you know if you have trouble getting an excellent a randomized controlled trial with a positive outcome published then you know you can see how low down on the priority this this piece of work was which is incredibly sad mm-hmm. and presumably though uh, your study and possibly others are, are backing what her findings up now yeah, so I think that, um, I say, we, we replicated her work in our pilot care study that we published. But again, you know, scientifically replicating in a real world someone else's data uh, isn't the sort of highest scientific value, I would say, which means it doesn't tend to go into high impact journals. It's more of a, a real world experience, which, you know, we must not underestimate the importance, but it's not not often seen as scientifically cutting edge, which I think is very fair, especially often when there are small numbers involved. And again, I think that's why your group and the survey and all the data that we're collecting provides much bigger 
data sets and much bigger evidence of the the size of this problem so so we can play an important part but does it matter that we're sort of not uh, got the scientific rigor that maybe you would have in your uh, as scientists and medical professionals well i think that this is where i believe a, a collaboration comes where we all want the same thing i want better care for you guys because i see you guys in clinic and i see the struggles you're facing you guys want better care but of course you do that, that that's what you should all strive for and if we both want that then as groups we can move forward i think the key thing is is that uh, just one hospital consultant with his group doing it down in Essex isn't that helpful. Um, so as you know, with a number of collaborators, including Professor uh, Karen Smith from Melbourne, um, the group in Lund, uh, the group in New York, the group in Pittsburgh uh, and other uh, Danish centres, we've formed an international task force of cardiac arrest recovery so that all of the sort of leaders in the world who are doing this work and doing pioneering piloting services and understanding uh, what benefits and, and effects we can have upon patients with cardiac arrest and their families, we are pooling our resources, we are pooling our data, and we are going to publish as one group so that we can uh, that that's powerful because it's then multi-continent, multi-country, and allows us to publish truly uh, global experiences of of potentially new therapies. Yeah, uh-huh. I mean the, the the people. It sounds excellent and sounds a fantastic idea to pull your um, talents together. Um, who who else have you got on there, and what, and what sort of backgrounds are they coming from? Yeah, so we've been purposefully um, broad. uh, And to be fair, most of the invitees are experts in follow-up from a a variety of different backgrounds. Um, And as you know, there was a meeting in Lund back in May of 2019 where all these experts were in one place uh, for a a meeting to discuss the very point, the follow-up of cardiac arrest patients and their families. Uh, And so... All or most of those speakers who are doing very, very similar but different things in different healthcare economies were, were presenting their data. And there was constantly a common theme. And the constant common theme was a lack of education for the patients and families, a lack of good, high quality communication, and a lack of follow up standardized follow-up and outcomes once the patient and family left the hospital. Uh, and it was quite scary that you people were talking from maybe seven different countries with seven different healthcare economies, some funded very well, some funded very badly. Uh, And yet the same core themes came out time after time after time. Uh, And the same core uh, therapies to try and make it better were all coming to the fore, which was you must have access to rehabilitation. You must have access to a specialist nurse in the first instance, which allows you to understand the problems. And you must then signpost to local services that can make this better. So it was just it, the, the same message came out time and time and time again from a whole day of talks from 10 different people across the whole of the globe. And we really then, with Professor uh, Karen Smith from Melbourne, just wanted to bring this group of world experts together under one, if you like, task force, all pushing towards the same thing. Because all of us can work in our own little silos on our own, doing some nice stuff geographically. But that doesn't change anything 
uh, if we don't pull it together. And so the key thing is to pull it together as a task force to say, look, in these seven countries with these seven big centres doing what we're doing, this is what we find. And then that also allows, I mean, all of the people we've got, so there's anaesthetists or ITU doctors on it. There are neurologists with an interest in the prognostication and follow-up. There are OTs, there are physiotherapists, there are speech and language therapists, there are cardiologists, there are patients, as you know, uh, Paul and representatives from your group are on the ITCAR panel. So we really hope that we've, by planning, got all of the right people in the right place uh, rather than doing tokenistic uh, things where ownership is wanted. This is about having the highest quality people in the world who want to be involved in this work, move it all forward in a, a really uh, sort of community way. Mm-hmm. Um, that's brilliant to hear. Um, you mentioned uh, ITCAR. Could you just tell me what that acronym stands for so people see it in the future they can... Uh what they're talking about yeah of course so it stands for the international because it is international what's truly international task force so it's not a guideline body but it's just a task force which wants to create evidence for best practice Um, and so it's international task force of cardiac arrest recovery so again it's trying to fill an international gap an international knowledge gap that we currently have we know that you know, we know all the things about the uh, the chain of survival, and it's well documented. The you know calling for help, the recognition, the CPR, the defibrillator, the systems in place that you need for a good outcome in the community, the delivery to a hospital that can deal with cardiac arrests, and all of the challenges and the intensive care and cardiology and neurology, etc. Um, and then obviously the discharge home. And I think that the chain of survival falls down on the last hoop, because I think, as someone said at the cardiac arrest meeting in Rutland, the first three parts of the chain of survival all occur within about the first 25 minutes. Um, And then the rehabilitation basically covers everything from arrival at hospital to the rest of your life, i.e. the next probably 50 years. And so I think it probably needs more clarification that you have sort of a post-arrest in-hospital component. And then there should be a separate chain uh, chain link, which describes, if you like, the post-hospital recuperation recovery uh, and getting back to normal life or as close to normal life as possible. Mm-hmm. So that makes sense. Um, but why do you think we're in this situation with sort of playing catch-up on, on the situation? I think it's because... There's been exponential growth in everything around your... I genuinely think we are going to see exponential growth in the numbers of cardiac arrest survivors because because of all these things in place. You know, So I would hope in time, with all of the initiatives pre-hospital, that our survival rates in the UK will get into double figures you know, and, and up into the high teens rather than in single figures and around 8 to 10%, which is the current, uh, the current uh, understanding. Um, So I think that the the catch up is purely that 10 years ago, very few people suffered a uh, very few people survived with good outcome, a out of hospital cardiac arrest. We know we now know uh, from your group and from our own data that there are many thousands of people walking around uh, following a cardiac arrest, uh, some with good lives, some with more challenging lives. But at the same time, everybody has a life post cardiac arrest. And I think that we are just playing catch up to recognize that there's so many of these people around. 
Uh, and number two, we're really only now just documenting the huge effect it has upon the patient's life and, and on the family around that patient. And I think it just takes time to uh, you know, create the unmet need, which I think we've now got or starting to measure. And once you've once you've seen the unmet need, you then, of course, got to develop systems to deal with that unmet need. And I think that's where we are currently. Mm-hmm. Well, thank you for summing that up nicely. Um, you touched on it a couple of times uh, about the beginning of the chain, and you are actually involved in uh, improving that in a couple of areas. And one of them, uh, uh, Professor Bill Toff was uh, at the event at Not Alone has helped us in past um, events as well, and he's going to be helping you in the future with something called Heartwise Essex. Could you tell me a little bit more about that? Yeah, absolutely. So I think that there is there is clearly no doubt uh, in anyone's mind that the uh, rapid and effective delivery of CPR, recognition of cardiac arrest, defibrillator and calling for help changes survival dramatically and not only the survival but the quality of the survival i.e people are less brain injured and are in a neurologically better state for recovery and the key thing is is again as as there's current themes again here is education so you know we want to develop a complete society of uh, cpr and ad trained people so there's actually a very nice little um uh, Twitter uh, sort of program going around at the moment on Twitter, which says that we want people in VF, if you like, never to die. People should not die of VF, of ventricular fibrillation arrhythmia, because wherever they are, be that in the home, be that in a shopping centre, in an airport, we must recognise that they've gone into it immediately. We must call for help. We must do CPR. And if we're in a, if w- what some people term a heart safe a town or a heart safe village or a heart safe which means that you're within i think 500 meters of a defibrillator at any one time and you know where it is and you have someone who understands how to utilize it which can be a problem sometimes people don't have the confidence uh, to use an aed then there is no reason why you know you should not survive with prompt recognition prompt cpr and prompt aed um, when we have people in the catheter lab where we're working in a hospital go into vf and we see them go into vf immediately we can see it on the screen of course we're in a very privileged position to shock them straight back to normal rhythm and often we do that within a about 25 seconds or even less we almost never don't get them out of ventricular fibrillation so what but we recognize it immediately because we've got them on a monitor and of course that's the much more challenging in the community but i think the bottom line is is, is that if people collapse uh, in a in a in a in a uh, cardiac arrest state we need to know it's not a seizure. We need to know not to put them in the recovery position. We need to know to call for help and we need to know to do CPR and get an AED as quickly as possible to see if that's what's required to make them better. So I think that that's where we, that's what we need to aspire to. What Heartwise Essex does uh, or will do is that we've been funded by SADS UK, a fantastic local charity within Essex, um, to support training every single year 10 student in all 122 schools in Essex uh, to know what a cardiac arrest is, to recognise it, to do CPR and to use an AED so that we want to basically bring about a generation of of, of survivors and, 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 and people who can give high quality CPR and AED use. Um, 
where you might say, well, what about year nine, year eight, year 11, year 12? Well, um, Rome wasn't built in a day. We have to start somewhere. But the idea of Heartwise Essex is that we will make the school and the uh, community first responders, it's, a, it's in association with the medical school and other healthcare providers locally, to make each school self-proficient in their ability to teach their children CPR to a high degree. So that Heartwise Essex is the sort of uh, catalyst, I would say, uh, that allows schools to go from maybe not a lot of training to a fully functioning training group that with support from us and with support from the medical school and with support uh, from the hospitals locally and expertise locally, can deliver it to all of their pupils in a timely fashion, but we have to start somewhere. Mm-hmm. And, and you're uh, you're basing this on the work of uh, Professor Bill Toff, aren't you? Could you just brief, briefly tell me what he's done, although I would like to get him on here. <laughs> yes, no, but I'm sure Bill will come on at some point and uh, and allow a better explanation. But the bottom line is is that uh, Bill understood this concept four years ago and said well we must train people in our communities in Leicester to to perform CPR better uh, be better trained and more confident to recognize it and deliver it and so he set up Heartwise in Leicester uh, four years ago and in that time I believe he's trained just under 50,000 people predominantly school children uh, in year 10 to to do uh, recognize do CPR use AEDs but he's also branched out to running clubs to uh, other community projects rugby clubs football clubs anywhere where there's a group of individuals who want to learn these skills and i think there is no excuse for anyone not to it doesn't matter you know it could be a bridge club it can be any sort of club it doesn't again in my view have to be a physical exercise type club it can be anything where anyone is so that if someone has a cardiac arrest you have someone with the or as many people as possible in an ideal world with the prerequisite skills of being able to recognize do cpr call for help and and, and use an aed if and where it is Mm -hmm. and what what you're doing in essex is uh, targeting the schools and how how does that fit in with the government's uh, mandatory teaching of cpr and aed awareness at schools is is that from next year i believe it's yeah 2020 so i think the timing is actually incredibly good um in terms of fulfilling that my understanding about the legislative part is that i think it's a little woolly so i think that what we propose in terms of the heartwise program is probably more than is is physically required by law, so to speak. I think it will be quite woolly as to how they measure it and what it involves. But I think the aims are clear. The aims are the recognition, the ability to do CPR, the ability to use an AED uh, and do that in a confident manner uh, to save lives. Mm That sounds fantastic. Well, good luck with that. And you've got... Yeah, well, I think the proof of the pudding, if I'm honest, in time... It's about sort of, it's almost like herd immunity with vaccinations. We need to get a county, whether it's Essex, whether it's Leicester, whether it's somewhere else, where there's almost a herd immunity where everybody can do it so that it doesn't matter where anyone falls down, whether they're at home, which we know are most of them, or in a public place, that everybody has the capability and the knowledge and the skill set and the confidence to deliver CPR and AEDs as required. 
And then you could imagine we may, and what we would love to see is a spike in survivals, you know, a percentage spike in survivals of cardiac arrest because of that prompt recognition and that prompt treatment. And I think it would be very unusual if we do this training well and deliver it properly for us not to see this because it would go against every other country that's done this in the past where they've delivered high quality education to schools uh, and communities and the CPR and AED rates have gone up and therefore the survival rates go up as well in, in proportion to that. So it would be strange for us not to see that. But at the same time, we, our data collection systems need to be robust and elegant enough to be able to document and tease that out. And I don't know whether that's the case yet. It may just be a bit too broad, but we will mm-hmm. see. I mean, it's a great comparison with the vaccinations, and I, I hope you can fulfil your aims. Um, and the final part that I wanted to talk to you today about um, was uh, something that you well, I went along to last week, uh, was the filming of a new CPR awareness video that you were doing. Can you just tell me a little bit about that as well? Yeah, so um, I think there's, there's there's a number of facets with this, and I think that everything, as I would say, has kind of come together in in one go for this. So, of course, we're launching Heartwise Essex, uh, a sort of franchise, for want of a better word, but a, a copycat program of Bill Toff's program in Leicester. We didn't want to reinvent the wheel, so why not just take something that is already working and change it slightly and deliver it, you know, in in a in a, in a similar way in Essex in a different county. Um, and then, uh, yeah, so uh, in the summer, I was the consultant at the Cardiac Arrest Centre in, in Basildon at the Cardiac Centre. And one week, I had four cardiac arrest patients come in. Uh, one of those patients uh, was Justin Edinburgh, who's an extremely well-known uh, footballer, professional footballer. Uh, and I think as many people who are listening will know, uh, sadly succumbed uh, to the injuries or brain injuries he sustained from his cardiac arrest. And he died sort of five to six days after his original cardiac arrest. Uh, the day before that, uh, a, a very similar aged man, a very fit man like Justin, uh, collapsed while playing cricket uh, at a cricket pitch just north of Colchester. Uh, and what was very different to, unfortunately, Justin Edinburgh's cardiac arrest was that uh, this chap who who fell down at cricket and had a cardiac arrest, a young boy uh, called Jack, who was a 17-year-old boy, did a CPR course two years previously, ran onto the pitch and said, well, hang about, this guy's not just having a fit. He's not just unwell. He's in cardiac arrest. And I know what to do because I've been on a course. And so he immediately put him on his back. He immediately uh, looked for a response. There was no response. There was no breathing. And he immediately did CPR to him uh, while he'd already called for uh, an ambulance and support. He called for the defibrillator from the pavilion, which came out almost immediately. And he shocked uh, the patient back within a very timely fashion to get a pulse back. And by the time the paramedics arrived, uh, he actually had got his pulse back, which is just as we would all want it to be. And it just really drove home the importance that this 17-year-old lad had had training two years previously, but had remembered and had the confidence to deliver this life-saving, simple therapy. And so the video that I shot last Saturday, which you you, you kindly came along to, uh, was recreating that day where Jack ran onto the pitch and saved this man's life. And the aim of it, um, we've done a spoken word piece through a a film director friend of mine, Meg Cannon. The aim of this piece is not to teach children CPR. It's not to teach teenagers what to do. It's to say to them, 
this is a really important thing that you might have to do at some point in your life. It might be tomorrow. It might be in 12 years time, but you need to have the confidence and the skill to go and do that and just get on with it and you will save someone's life. And it's just a highlight that, uh, that that is what is achievable with some very, very simple training and a little bit of confidence to back yourself to do it. And it's going to have a hashtag of hashtag what Jack did, because I think it's really important that everybody in the community can learn what Jack did, which will save a life and will save hundreds of lives and millions of lives maybe across the whole of the world in time. Uh, we need to create a global group of CPR and AED providers. Absolutely. I mean, it sounds a great initiative and I've seen a, a rough cut of some of the footage and uh and yeah, some superb acting in there as well from the patient <laughs> and uh and for those that don't know i played the patient because the patient understandably uh didn't want to play himself given the the, the challenges that he had been through so uh yeah for the purposes of uh of cinematic uh beauty i I played the patient (laughs) well i'm I'm sure you've seen uh, many a time what the patient actually goes through so you're probably in a great position to be able to to do it but also i was just going to say that i've seen or heard some of the the spoken word um that meg delivers and it's it's incredibly powerful so i wish you all the luck with it because i'm sure it's going to be a success um and, and it's a different take on the sort of cpr video that we haven't seen before so um, yeah, I think so. I think we've got, we've got to empower, you know, we've got to empower our young people in a way that they uh, they know and they understand. And you know, anyone who's got a teenager out there, like I do, uh, will understand that our teenagers interact with uh, education and with social media and things in a very very different way to, to the way that we did when we were teenagers, even though it doesn't seem that long ago. And so we have to appeal to them in a very different way to, to what we think conventionally might work. And I, I really hope that this might open a few doors to allow you know, access to teenagers to want to do something mm-hmm. good. I totally agree with you. And uh, I think that just about wraps it up for this episode. And I'd just like to say thanks very much again for dedicating some of your time to chatting to with me. And I hope to speak to you again very soon. Thanks very much, Tom. That's a pleasure. No, thanks for your time.